What does innovation sound like? It sounds like the luxury of being in the moment with your customer, client, or patient. It sounds like having the right information right when you need it. It sounds like being at your best for your customers and your business. Thanks to Highland's intelligent content solutions that improve digital processes, innovators everywhere are able to do their thing better, whatever that thing is. Now, who doesn't like the sound of that? Highland, for innovators everywhere, visit highland.com. Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. We're the Miami Trauma Team, back with another episode from Jackson Memorial Hospital's Rider Trauma Center. This episode, in which we will focus on a recent systematic review on direct peritoneal resuscitation, or DPR, we have the privilege of being joined by guest host Dr. Rishi Rattan, a member of the first iteration of the Miami Trauma Team. As always, we'd like to start with some introductions. I'm Mike Cobbler-Lichter, PGY3 in general surgery, in my first of two years of dedicated research with our trauma faculty here in Miami. My name is Eva Rechiga. I'm a PGY7 in general surgery, also in Miami. I'm Eugenia Kwan, Trauma and Surgical Critical Care Fellow at the Ryder Trauma Center. And I'm Jonathan Besoso. I'm an attending trauma surgeon at the Ryder Trauma Center and assistant professor of surgery at the University of Miami. I'm Rishi Rattan. I'm an attending trauma surgeon at Legacy Emanuel Hospital in Portland, Oregon. And as Mike mentioned, I'm what you can consider a behind-the-knife Miami trauma team alumnus, as Eva and I were part of the original Miami trauma team back when I was an attending at Ryder. And I'm happy to be back. Thanks for having me. Happy to have you back, Dr. Rattan. So today we will be discussing a topic that's still pretty cutting edge, direct peritoneal resuscitation. So what is it? Why do we do it? Who should get it? We're going to talk about all these things and more using a recent systematic review published by Drs. Ribeiro, who brought DPR to Brazil, and Saverio, who has written numerous international guidelines with the World Society of Emergency Surgery, including on open abdomen, to guide our discussion. All paper references will be linked in the show notes, and we're very thankful to have Dr. Rattan with us today, who is actually a co-author on this paper and is somewhat of a DPR expert. So let's get into it with a little bit of background. What exactly is DPR? I had honestly never heard of it before starting residency here in Miami. Even when I was an intern and first saw it, I remember questioning why it was called resuscitation when it just seemed to me to be continuous abdominal irrigation. So as mentioned, DPR stands for direct peritoneal resuscitation. But to really discuss what it is and its benefits, we need to talk a little bit about shock and the history of resuscitation in general. As shock is a state of cellular and tissue hypoxia, and resuscitation is how we treat shock. Back in the 80s and 90s, when the idea of damage control surgery was coming back into practice, trauma patients got a lot of crystalloid. At that time, giving blood, even in a trauma setting, was thought to be a bad idea for a variety of reasons. And all this crystalloid we were giving had a lot of consequences. It led to balledema, inability to close patients' abdomens, and a significant degree of endotheliopathy. This endotheliopathy would lead to splenic microvascular compromise that would persist even after adequate resuscitation, even if the patient's hemodynamic status is rapidly corrected. And so what we eventually learned over the course of the early 2000s is that hypovolemic shock actually leads to progressive vasoconstriction of the microvasculature, especially within the splenic circulation. Jason Smith and Neil Garrison Louisville were involved in pioneering a lot of this basic science research. And what they found was that as shock progresses, the body runs out of energy needed to pump sodium out of the endothelial cells. 
since there's no ATP to run the ATPA sodium. The sodium gets stuck in the cell, water follows the sodium, and this leads to cytoskeletal disruption and swelling of the endothelial cell that actually causes physical compression of the microvascular lumen, leading to clotting off of these microvascular pathways. Okay, that's a lot of basic science stuff that I vaguely remember, but I'm still not sure how this relates to DPR quite yet. Let's try to get a little bit more clinical. The idea for DPR came along as a way to try and reduce that endotheliopathy-induced splanchnic hypoperfusion. Essentially, we're using DPR to try and put something that is osmotically active into the interstitial space to try and pull excess water out of the endothelial cells. So in patients that have an open abdomen after the OR, we can instill large volumes of peritoneal diacylate directly into the peritoneum in order to try and pull this excess water out of the endothelial cells to restore microvascular blood flow to the splanchnic vasculature and its organs. Thus, the goal of DPR is to augment intravenous resuscitation by infusing this hyperosmolar solution to reduce bowel edema and ideally allow for primary fascial closure. Okay, so now with that great explanation of DPR, we can get into this paper you helped come up with, Dr. Rathan. The paper is titled, The Role of Direct Peritoneal Resuscitation in the Treatment of Hemorrhagic Shock after Trauma and in Emergency Acute Care Surgery, a Systematic Review. In this systematic review, the keyword direct peritoneal resuscitation was searched in the PubMed, Medline, and Silo databases. Articles from January 2014 to April 2021 were included. 74 articles were found, and after filtering out duplicates, screening irrelevant articles, and further manual review of the articles, a total of 20 articles on BPR were obtained. Of these 20 articles, there were 15 animal studies, four clinical studies of various designs, and one expert opinion. The paper gave recommendations on the technical aspects of how to perform DPR, as well as synthesized the basic science findings and clinical outcomes reported by the 20 included studies. Because of the heterogeneity of the study design, no composite outcomes were reported. All right, so we got the what out of the way, but now what about the how, Dr. Rattan? So as the paper mentions and references some of the original papers as well by Drs. Smith, Garrison, et al., DPR relies on infusing a warmed glucose-based hyperosmolar solution intraperitoneally by a percutaneous catheter with the tip ending near the pelvis and or the root of the mesentery. That's probably one of my most common questions when people ask about how to set it up is where should we place that catheter? And the exact placement is less important than ensuring maximal distance between the infusion site and your suction catheter sitting on top of your sterile dressing protecting the abdominal contents. This maximizes dwell time. The abdomen is usually left open with extra abdominal drains and a negative pressure dressing in the traditional Barker vacuum pack method. And there's actually a really great color schematic of exactly how to set that up as part of a DPR circuit in Dr. Ribeiro's paper put together by one of his talented medical students. The link's going to be available in the show notes. While practice varies in perforating the sterile drape protecting the abdominal contents, I prefer not to perforate the drape, which is my standard practice for all Barker backpack dressings, again to increase the dwell time and reduce fluid losses. Many of us prefer a larger multi-channel drain, such as a 19 French Blake drain, though with the high rate of infusion, it's unlikely to get clogged regardless of the size that you use. Through this catheter, Smith et al. described starting with a bolus of 800 milliliters of euthermic diacylate for the first hour, followed by a rate of 400 milliliters per hour, or 5 mils per tig per hour, until abdominal closure. One note here is that for the hypothermic patients, I can often ask the nurses to warm the fluid up to 40 degrees Celsius to assist with rewarming, but otherwise I have it as a euthermic fluid. Most people, including myself, place bilateral drains for the effluent. 
Kim et al. suggests using low negative pressure at 50 to 75 millimeters of mercury to allow better distribution of the diacylate. I will certainly start there, but don't hesitate to go up to around 125 to 150 millimeters of mercury as if it were an abthera or other negative pressure wound therapy dressing, if needed, to accommodate the outflow. Other recommendations included always warming the fluid due to concern for heat loss with such high flow rates and strict hourly calculation of fluid balance to avoid the development of abdominal compartment syndrome. Last two considerations are really important. We all know about the lethal triad and trauma. Patients with open abdomens are already predisposed to hypothermia, so we need to really be careful not to potentially worsen this. Additionally, this is a huge volume of fluid going into the patient's abdomen, so we need to work closely with the nursing team to stay on top of the fluid balance every hour. Don't be fooled by the fact that these patients have an open abdomen. Given the volume of fluid we're instilling, they absolutely can still develop abdominal carbon syndrome if we're not monitoring them properly. Great points. So we talked about the technical recommendations in the review, but what about some of the results in animal models, given that the majority of papers included in the review were animal studies? Sure. Without getting too far into the weeds of the basic science, most of the experimental studies were carried out with rat models subjected to mesenteric ischemia, septic shock, hemorrhagic shock, and or brain death. In these models, DPR was actually found to improve blood flow, tissue hypoxia, edema, visceral organ perfusion, and reduce intestinal mucosal and liver tissue injury. Various local and systemic inflammatory markers were also found to be reduced. Only a single study did not see a change in histological severity or alter the selected markers investigated. Additionally, the use of DPR in brain death models resulted in increased hepatic blood flow, less required volume of IV fluids to normalize blood pressure, less organ edema, less or decreased cell apoptosis, they had corrected electrolyte imbalances, reduced interleukin levels, and all these things suggested that the potential role for DPR in increasing the availability of suitable organs for every donor. Thanks, Eva. I think that's probably a sufficient summary of the basic science findings for the average clinician listening to this podcast. Let's get into the juicy stuff. What about the clinical studies that were a part of the review? Yes, the part we've all been waiting for. Clinical studies have evaluated DPR use in patients with septic shock, brain death, severe pancreatitis, and after damage control surgery. On a cellular level, DPR for humans in shock appears to improve blood flow to the visceral organs, mitigate intestinal barrier breakdown, and reduce both tissue damage and inflammatory cytokine levels. Additionally, a prospective case control study in brain dead patient organs that were examined in this review led to higher organ transplantation rate per donor. Looking more at clinical outcome data, two of the papers by Smith et al. have shown benefits when DPR is used as an adjunct to conventional damage control resuscitation by increasing rates of primary fascial closure after damage control laparotomy and decreasing post-abdominal complication, ventilatory days, and ICDs, which is where we're going to shift our focus for the rest of the episode. Great. So getting into our first of two clinical studies, Eva, can you tell us about the first article entitled Direct Peritoneal Resuscitation Accelerates Primary Abdominal Walk Closure After Damage Control Surgery? I sure can. So this was a single-center retrospective case control study. All patients who were admitted with hemorrhagic shock requiring damage control surgery were considered in the intervention group, and those patients received standardized wound closure with adjunctive DPR. This group was then matched in two-to-one fashion to a control group to control for ISS, age, gender, mechanism, presenting systolic blood pressure, and presenting pH. The result of this was 20 patients in the intervention group and 40 in the control group. 
Had AIS of greater or equal to three were excluded from the controls as there were only zero patients in the intervention matching group with a brain injury this severe. A single early death was excluded as DPR time was less than two hours prior to death in that patient. In regards to management of the open abdomen of the control, this was determined by clinical judgment of the treating surgeon. 83% of controls were managed with a Barker vacuum dressing similar to the one created for DPR. 3 of 40 were managed with a Bogota bag, 2 of 40 with a permanent mesh, and 1 of 40 with temporary mesh. The two groups were well matched with no significant between group differences in age, presenting or 24-hour heart rate, systolic blood pressure, ISS, pH, base deficit, LFTs, UN creatinine, or blood product requirement. There was a small difference in presenting INR with the DPR group having a higher INR of 1.7 versus 1.4. Of note, both groups were very, very sick. Average ISS was greater than 32, and on average, patients required more than 20 units of blood products within the first 24 hours. However, the amount of resuscitative fluid and blood products to correct hemodynamic status was no different between the groups. So what were the outcomes in the study? What were they looking for? There were actually quite a few. So the study examined differences in mortality, hospital length of stay, ICU length of stay, vent days, time to closure, rate of primary fascial closure, number of abdominal complications, and that included wound infection, intra-abdominal abscess or infection, enterocutaneous fistula, biloma, and dehiscence or evisceration. These patients were followed up until the six-month mark. What did they find? So there were no differences in mortality, hospital or ICU length of stay, or vent days. However, there was a statistically significant decrease in time to abdominal closure in the DPR group, 4.4 days versus 7 in the non-DPR group. Additionally, the percentage of patients who were able to undergo primary fascial closure was also considerably increased in the DPR group with an odds ratio of 11 to 1. Though the overall complication rate, which is quite high, 79% in the DPR group and 85% in the control group, was unchanged between groups, the number of intra-abdominal complications was much lower in the DPR group with an odds ratio of 5 to 1 in favor of the DPR group. Perhaps the most striking in this outcome was the development of six enterocutaneous fistulas in the control group versus zero in the intervention group. And finally, at the six-month follow-up mark, there was only one ventral hernia in the DPR group, which was the single patient in the DPR group who was unable to be closed primarily at the time of definitive abdominal closure, versus 34% of patients in the control group, corresponding to an odds ratio of 8.5 to 1 in favor of the DPR group. This all sounds pretty convincing. Mike, any notable flaws in this study? So first is the fact that the study is a single center retrospective review. The authors themselves note the fact that the patients who were selected for the DPR group were not selected randomly, which could introduce a substantial source of selection bias. Additionally, the intervention group consisted of less than 20 individuals. With the two to one matching to this group, we're left with only 40 controlled cases. While we don't have exact numbers, this likely represents only a small fraction of all patients who received damage control surgery at this center over the four-year period that was examined. It's possible the findings of these 40 mass patients in the control group might not be entirely generalizable to the entirety of patients who are eligible to be included in the control group. Yeah, I agree. Definitely an impressive group of concept, but this article was published in 2010. What's happened in regards to clinical trials or other studies since then? Well, I'm glad you asked this. Dr. Smith's group actually published a prospective trial four years later entitled Adjunctive Treatment of Abdominal Catastrophes and Sepsis with Direct Peritoneal Resuscitation, Indications for Use in Acute Care Surgery, which we are going to discuss next. So as mentioned, this was a prospective study, still single center. This took place over five years after the conclusion of the previously discussed paper. 
All patients between 18 and 80 years old who underwent damage control abdominal surgery to treat a acute surgical emergency were included. In the first two and a half years, patients underwent damage control surgery using a standardized closure and resuscitation protocol. And in the second two and a half years, all patients undergoing damage control surgery were given DPR in addition to this standardized resuscitation and closure technique. Okay. Uh, before we go any further, Eugenia, any comments about how this compares to the prior studies so far? Well, the fact that this was a prospective study eliminated some of the sample bias we saw in the prior study, given that patients were essentially randomly assigned to TPR or standard management based on when in time they present to the hospital. One thing to make note of, however, is that these patients are emergency general surgery patients, not trauma patients and hemorrhagic shock. So the study populations we are making inferences about are certainly very different. Yeah, that's a great point. Definitely a great next step after the first study. But as you mentioned, there's a big difference between emergency general surgery patients who tend to be older, more medically complicated compared to trauma patients. So let's get on with discussing the rest of the paper, Mike. All right. So the abdominal closure technique was standardized in all patients, as mentioned. This consisted of a 19 French Blake tray being placed in the lateral left upper quadrant, directed around the root of the mesentery, along the left paracolic gutter, and down into the pelvis, as described in the systematic review. Then, a sterile exarchicet cover was fenestrated and placed over the abdominal contents, but under the fascia. A sterile OR towel was placed over the plastic cover, and another drain placed within the towel. The abdomen was then covered with an occlusive dressing, and the towel drain placed to low-pressure suction. In the DPR group, the dialysate was instilled using the drain, and the recommendations laid out in the systematic review were followed. An 800 milliliter bolus in the first hour, followed by 400 milliliters per hour until repeat laparotomy. Though IV blood and crystalloid were administered at the discretion of the treating physicians, with the goal directed therapy to normalize resuscitative parameters in hemodynamics, volume, type, and timing of resuscitation and OR takebacks are not standardized. From there, the two groups were compared with a propensity score matching algorithm to control for age, sex, admission temperature, systolic blood pressure, MET, pH, heart rate, respiratory rate, sodium, potassium, creatinine, BUN, hematocrit, hemoglobin, white blood cell count, GCS, PaO2, PCO2, and FiO2. Other clinical parameters for comparison included presence of peritoneal soiling, whether or not a malignancy was identified, total EBL at index operation, and Apache 2, SOFA, and SAPS 2 scores calculated within 24 hours of ICU admission. Well, that's a lot of data. What outcomes uh, were they looking at this time? So similarly to the other paper we discussed, outcome variables were hospital and ICU length of stay, mortality, time to and type of definitive abdominal closure, and then volume of blood transfused in the first 24 and 48 hours, as well as crystalloid in the first 24 and 48 hours. Additionally, they looked at abdominal complications, including organ space infection, bleeding, intercutaneous fistula, evisceration or dehiscence after primary closure, and unplanned repeat laparotomy. And how did the groups compare? So 118 patients in total were enrolled, and after propensity score matching, each group had a total of 44 patients. Patients in the DPR group were younger, less tachycardic, more tachypnic, and with a higher platelet count than the control group. However, the control group was slightly hyponatremic and hypokalemic compared to the DPR group. For matching, these differences all disappeared, however. Additionally, for matching, there was no difference in operative indication with the majority of cases being perforated viscous, 
SBO, or intestinal ischemia. Though necrotizing pancreatitis, an asthmatic leak, dehiscence or evisceration, and abdominal compartment syndrome were also represented in this study. The most common reasons for opting for damage control surgery were also not different between groups. The indication in the vast majority of patients being planned second look for bowel viability or contamination, 58% of cases, or hemodynamics instability in 21% of cases. Time to initial take back was also similar between groups. Okay, so maybe the DPR group was a little bit healthier overall, but this seems reasonably controlled for in the propensity matched group. What about outcomes? Blood products at 24 and 48 hours were no different between groups, with no patients requiring more than 10 units in the first 24 hours. The control group did receive more IV crystalloid in both the 24 and 48 hour periods, with 11 liters and 18 liters respectively, compared to 10 liters and 16 liters in the DPR group. The initial Apache 2, SOFA, and SAPS 2 scores were not different between groups. But at 48 hours, the DPR group had significantly lower scores compared to the control group, with most of the significant improvements in these scores being attributable to statistically significant improvements in pH, pCO2, PaO2, serum creatinine, urine output, and total bilirubin. In regards to operative outcomes, DPR patients, again, were closed earlier than the control group, 7.7 versus 5.9 days, required fewer trips to the OR, three versus four, had higher rates of primary special closure, 68% versus 43%, and had lower rates of abdominal complications at 27% compared to 47%. This time, the DPR group had lower ICU length of stay and fewer ventilator days, though overall length of stay was the same. And finally, there was a trend towards lower mortality in the DPR group at 7% versus 12%, but this did not reach statistical significance. Any initial thoughts on these results, Eugenia? A lot of these results seem pretty similar to the retrospective study we discussed. Higher rates of and less time until closure and less abdominal complication. One thing to note that highlights the difference between the populations in these two studies, though, is that overall, not a single patient in the study required more than 10 units of blood in the first 24 hours versus the average patient in the retrospective study receiving more than 20 units. So again, though the findings are relatively similar, the patient populations aren't. Another comment that I think is especially relevant in the emergency general surgery population, I think it's great that their ICU scores and markers of end-organ perfusion are improved at 48 hours, lending further credence to the idea that DPR is a way to alleviate shock-induced splanchnic microcirculatory dysfunction. How about study limitations? While propensity score matching can be a useful tool, we have to use it as exactly that a tool. Propensity score matching can't make the comparison groups be the same. In this case, we have 20 plus variables included in the match algorithm, some of which are correlated such as MAP and SBP. Propensity score matching works by running a multivariate regression and assigning a score to each case. But with this many variables, there's essentially an infinite number of ways to come up with the same score. And the important thing to realize is that two patients can have the same score but not be all that similar especially when this many variables are used. For instance, age can drive the propensity score in one direction, while pH and blood pressure drive it in another direction. And although the score ends up coming out the same, the individual variables themselves can end up being quite different. In this case, we do have confidence that the groups are relatively similar. However, given that the post-matching cohorts do not have any significant differences in any of the variables matched for, 
but a failure to find a difference does not mean that there is no difference, especially when sample size limits are power. In addition, the EPR group started enrollment a full two and a half years after the control group, which could bias towards better outcomes in the DPR group as there are advances in patient care. Finally, as we've mentioned multiple times, the trauma population is not the same as the emergency general surgery population, limiting generalizability. These are all great points, though it is promising to see that a lot of the outcomes evaluated are better in both the EGS group as well as the trauma cohorts. One thing I did notice while I was reading these papers, though, is that none of these actually comment on patient selection for DPR. So how exactly do you decide who should get it? Dr. Jutan and Dr. Meza, so how do, I feel like we've seen a lot of open belly set writer, but it seems like the majority of those don't end up getting DPR. Yeah, that's fair. And, and that also mirrors what my experience was when I was at Rider introducing DPR to Rider. I, I think the patient selection in DPR is largely surgeon comfort mediated. One of the lines I've heard from your average surgeon is that they're willing to use DPR, but only on patients they won't close on the first take back. They say, oh, well, we're just going to go back tomorrow, so I'm not going to do DPR. It sounds reasonable on its face, but the problem with this approach is that we're not that great at predicting who will be closed right away or not both from logistical as well as physiologic reasons. Fluid administration in the first 24 to 48 hours can vary widely from predicted. OR logistics often mean the first take back happens later than hoped for at many hospitals, increasing the chance of being unable to close. And also, if you're wrong, you miss that golden opportunity of using DPR in the first 24 to 48 hours and will see less effect from it later on. Thus, in my practice, I consider DPR on virtually all open abdomens. Of course, my experience is an N of one, but I definitely feel like I've had cases that wouldn't have been closable on first take back that DPR helped me get closed. One of the complaints from detractors of DPR that I sort of agree with, again, based on my N of one experience, is that DPR seems less effective at reducing bowel wall edema and achieving primary fascial closure in EGS patients who are resuscitated mostly with crystalloid, though it still has positive effects. And indeed, when I have DPR in my patients who've been resuscitated with blood as a trauma patient, the results can often be just shocking. It looks like you're opening up an elective surgery belly on the take back, and it's like you never were there in the first place. That is a less dramatic effect in the EGS patients, but it still works and it still helps. Yeah, I, I agree, kind of echoing Dr. Rattan's experience. I think if you're going to do it and you're going to commit to this being a part of your practice, you should consider doing it on any abdomen that you leave open. Because again, echoing what he said, we're pretty bad at knowing or at predicting who's going to end up getting close in the first take back. A lot of the things that we talked about in the basic science part of this that I feel a lot of people probably fell asleep while that was going on, but endotheliopathy and other things, I think that because we're giving more plasma early on, and now more whole blood early on in patients who are trauma patients, I think that that is also helping to mediate some of these effects of DPR that we may not be seeing in the EGS patients, again, because they are only really getting resuscitation with crystalloid and not necessarily getting those same beneficial effects on the endothelium that we're kind of giving on top of the DPR to trauma patients who are getting resuscitated with blood products that are known to repair the endothelium. All right. All great points. And even in my limited experience as a chief resident, I have definitely had patients that we thought would be no problem to close the next day. And lo and behold, it didn't turn out that way. So I agree with everything that was just said. Anywho, any other technical considerations that weren't addressed in this paper we'd like to finally comment on? I'd like to add a few final comments that aren't often found in the papers, but are 
important for the technical aspects of DPR. Overall, I think management should follow local practices for open abdomen. That is, if you routinely obtain intra-abdominal pressures on your open abdomens, you can continue to do so. But if you don't, I don't know that it's required as long as you have a nurse doing hourly ins and outs. If you extubate some of your open abdomen patients, you can certainly do that with DPR. In terms of mobilizing a DPR patient, I would approach that, however, with extreme caution, as that has not been well studied. In addition to concerns about hypothermia and abdominal compartment syndrome, one of the questions I get asked when introducing the procedure to a new unit is around electrolyte monitoring. There are no reports of electrolyte abnormalities being worsened by DPR in the hundreds of cases published so far. And if you think about it, if anything, with peritoneal diacylate in the belly, it should actually help not hurt disturbances. None of the leaders in DPR or the papers recommend more intensive electrolyte monitoring as part of a DPR protocol. The other thing that I wanted to mention here is that we can get too sidetracked by the term resuscitation in the nave. This is not a substitute for intravenous resuscitation. And if you look at the papers, while overall in general, the amount of IV fluid required is less, they still do require some IV fluids. So my personal practice, which is just based on experience of seeing how much fluid a DPR patient needs, is I generally start at 50% of the rate of what I would for maintenance IV fluids if they weren't getting DPR. So half rate maintenance IV fluids. And then I sort of treat them like a burn patient where I follow the urine output and other dynamic markers of intravascular volume status and adjust the fluid from there. Once you get that locked in, which takes a few hours, then you can sort of let it ride. But in those first few hours, it's a pretty intensive following of ins and outs, hemodynamics, lactate, central venous oxygen, if you're tracking that, to adjust the fluid rate. And most often I find I don't actually have to give the full 100% rate of maintenance IV fluids. Others have come to me with hesitation in using it because they are unsure of the effects on an anastomosis or on a packed abdomen. You know, I've had surgeons ask me, are, are the laps that have packed around this cracked liver, are they going to float away in the diacylate and the patient's going to bleed out? Rest assured, study after study has supported that, if anything, the cellular effects of DPR should improve blood flow to an anastomosis, not harm it. And based on cellular studies of DPR, there should not be harm to a packed abdomen. If anything, DPR would assist in achieving homeostasis in a more rapid fashion. The abdomen that is packed or in discontinuity or freshly anastomosed is exactly the sort of abdomen that would benefit most from DPR. And I would encourage you to use DPR in these situations. Another concern I hear related to the volume of fluid being infused is ensuring adequate fluid removal without causing harm with too much negative pressure. Because most of us who do DPR upsize the drains from the 10 to 18 French strains of a traditional Barker backpack to 24 to 28 French chest tubes and then use two of them, this is not really a concern. With these larger bore drains, even with a lower suction level as suggested by Kim et al., it's very unlikely that we will not be able to keep up with fluid infusion. I haven't had major problems, for example, with our dressing leaking because we're infusing so much fluid. Those chest tubes really suck it up before it starts causing a problem with the dressing or any leakage. One note, particularly with these chest tubes, but with any drain, is that you have to monitor the location of the drain closely. If a drain slips to the edge of your sterile dressing, it can suck up bowel and cause a pressure necrosis injury. Okay, great. Thank you, Dr. Rutan, for all those pro tips. And strong work team, we somehow made it through all that basic science talk, and I hope our listeners did too. Probably needed a cup of coffee or something in between. But in addition, I'm hoping everybody left with at least a good understanding of what DPR is now, how to do it, why we should do it, and who it's appropriate for and what patient uh, would benefit from it. So once again, thank you so much, Dr. Rattan, for coming back to join us for this episode. It was great having you back again. 
And I think it's time to summarize all the points that we went over with a few quick hits. Number one, consider DPR in all your open abdomens in emergency general surgery and trauma. You never know when you're going to be able to close some of these patients, and we're bad at predicting this. Number two, the principle of DPR is to allow the fluid to dwell in the abdomen as long as possible. Keep the catheter deep and don't put holes in your dressing. Number three, DPR is ideal for patients with packing who are in discontinuity and for fresh anastomoses. These will only benefit from DPR, not be harmed by it. Number four, make sure these patients are receiving hourly eyes and nose. Nursing buy-in is huge for this procedure. And number five, DPR is associated with higher rates of fascial closure, reduces inflammation, and improves blood flow to the abdomen. So those are quick kits for this episode. Do you want to sign us off, Dr. Rajan? Well, thank you to the new Miami trauma team for forgetting about us little guys on the original Miami trauma team. It was fun to be back in the studio and do this episode with you all. And I'm excited to see what's in the future. To everyone else, remember to dominate the day. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day.